Mike Mitchell is going to teach Sunday school this morning. So let me open us with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Lord, we often take for granted the ability to just wake up and come to church, but it is a privilege and a blessing to be able to do that. Lord, that you give us the physical help to to come out. Not all of our brothers and sisters are healthy today. And so we pray for those who aren't able to be here. But for those of us who did come, I pray that you would help us to enthusiastically receive your word, both from our brother Mike this morning and then also from Pastor Steve during the main worship service. pray that you would give us ears to hear your truth and help us to apply the truth in a way that would conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you for what you've been doing in our lives and what you will do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to teach, but you may remember that when I last taught, we were studying what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It just so happens that a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Steve was also looking at this section of Scripture as he shared his heart with us about his desire for us here at Lakeside in 2018. So I hope you don't find it redundant, and I don't think you will, because the Word of the Lord always speaks to us if we're willing to listen. And I want to finish the study that I began on this passage this morning by looking at the last petition in this model prayer. As I said, and as Pastor Steve had said several times while looking at this passage, this prayer is a prayer in which we are to model our prayers after. The disciples had asked Jesus to teach us how to pray. It's not a prayer to recite, although it isn't necessarily wrong to recite it, but it's really meant as a pattern that we can follow as the Lord teaches us how to pray. So the last time I taught, we were looking at how the Lord taught the disciples and us to deal with our past sins in the fifth petition when He told us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Then in our petition this morning for our study today, we're going to be looking at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6. As he adds, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So as we begin, I think it's important to recognize the relationship to the previous request. After Jesus taught them to pray for forgiveness of their sins, the next petition, he begins with the word, and, and lead us not into temptation. This means that the two thoughts are connected. Jesus is saying, after you pray for your past sins, now you are to pray for help from succumbing to the temptations of new ones. Christians first pray for pardon of their sins. Then the sincere Christian fervently seeks the grace needed to prevent themselves from falling into new sins or repeating old ones. It's a natural progression to move from the petition of justification, and that's what happens when God forgives us of our sins, to a petition concerning our sanctification. The sixth petition concerns our sanctification as believers seek not to fall into sin any longer. Now some theologians look at this 
and they divide it into two petitions. They say, lead us not into temptation is one, and deliver us from evil is another. Other Bible scholars see it as one petition. I agree with the latter. I believe it is one request with the second phrase that adds clarification and understanding to the first. And I think it's going to become clear as to why I think that way as we get into it. The way I'm going to approach this text this morning is to define and expound on the word temptation. Then, using this definition, we will attempt to draw out the heart and intent of the meaning of this prayer, and we will end by giving some application for us today. So let's begin by defining the word temptation. In Scripture, the word that's used here in our text is parasmos. It is used several times in Scripture and can have similar but different meanings depending upon the context. Specifically, there's two different meanings. Turn over to James chapter 1. We'll begin looking at James chapter 1. I want to read verse 13 and we'll see one specific meaning. James in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So the word used here for tempted, parasmos, is the verb form of the word, and it's the same as the word temptation in our text in Matthew 6. So I think you can clearly see in this context, the word used for temptation means to entice one to do evil. And this clearly states that God doesn't do this. He doesn't tempt anyone. He does not entice anyone to do evil. In no way is any test or trial that God puts before man put there with the intention of enticing him to do evil. And we see that very clearly here in James. We can look at other scripture as well that says God does not entice us to do evil, to sin. He does not purposely put us into situations where we would be enticed to commit sin and do evil. So we see that one definition of temptation would be a solicitation to evil. This is clearly what's used here in James chapter 1 verse 13. When I think of this use of the word, I think first and foremost of the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness. Keep your finger in James chapter 1 and turn over to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we'll see an example of this. Matthew 4, I'll read verses 1 through 3. Matthew tells us then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Matthew calls Satan what? The tempter. Throughout Scripture, Satan is described and shown as the tempter, enticing men and women to evil, to sin. Think back to the beginning of mankind in the Garden of Eden. We find Satan doing what? Tempting Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. 
You scan through Scripture, you'll see this many times during the days of the early church when the believers were selling things and sharing everything they had in common with each other. There was a story there tucked away about Ananias and Sapphira who sold some land and they held back some. And if you read that passage, it'll tell you that Satan put it in Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan tempted Ananias and he fell to that temptation. You'll read later on in John chapter 13 that it tells us that Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray the Lord. I don't know exactly how Satan works on and in our hearts, but it's clear that Satan is a master at temptation. He's an expert tempter to sin and to evil. But it's not only Satan who entices us to sin. We can be enticed by our own fleshly desires. Flip back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, I read verse 13. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to go on through and read 14 and 15 this time. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away And here it is, he's enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So we see Satan entices us to do evil, and our own fleshly desires and lust entice us to do evil. That's one kind of temptation, the enticement to sin. But there's another use of this word parosmos in Scripture. I want to go back, you're still in James I want to go back a few verses to verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1. Here, before James uses the word for temptation, parosmos, as an enticement to sin, look at how he uses the same word in verse 2 and 3. James says in verse 2 and 3, he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Again, the same Greek word used here for trials is the same exact word used in verse 13 for temptation. In this context, it's not an enticement to sin, but what? It's a testing, a trial, a proving. And we know that from other scripture that God tests all of us at times. Scripture is full of examples of God testing believers. I can think of one specifically that came to mind to me was the the life of Abraham. I can't think of anyone in Scripture outside of the Lord Himself who was put to such a severe test as Abraham. When you think about Abraham was told by the Lord that he was going to be a father to a great nation, but year went by and year went by and no son to carry on the family name. And then finally when he's an old man, the Lord grants him a son and then what does he do? Tells him to kill him, to sacrifice him. I don't know about you, but if you put yourself in his position, I can't imagine that kind of a trial. He told him in Genesis 22, the Lord tested Abraham and said to him, to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there for a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And we know the rest of the story. Abraham obeyed down to the very last instruction. It wasn't until he raised the knife to slay his son that an angel of the Lord appeared to him and stopped him and God provided a ram for him for the sacrifice. Abraham was put 
to a severe test and he passed. Job is another example of an Old Testament saint that God tested. God allowed actually Satan himself to put Job through one of the most gruesome tests a man has ever gone through, losing all of his great wealth, his children, his health, and yet Job was faithful. And you could go on thinking about Old Testament saints, Joseph, Daniel, many of the Old Testament saints went through trials and testing. Not all the examples were positive. In the New Testament, I thought about Peter. Peter seemed like the least likely apostle to fail a testing of his faith. He was so gung-ho, so passionate about his faith, in the garden he was ready to die for the Lord. Yet, do you remember later that evening when the Lord went off to himself and pray, and he came back, what was Peter and the disciples doing? Sleeping. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, couldn't you stay awake for just a little while? Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And then what happened a few hours later in the courtyard as Jesus was being interrogated and tried, Peter denied him once, twice, three times. God wasn't enticing Peter to sin in this example, but he was testing him. Peter struggled in his temptation. But we know that God used this to grow and mature Peter in his faith. So we see the word that's used, interpreted at temptation, is an enticement to evil. It can also be interpreted as a trial for testing or proving. And it's not always easy to differentiate. Context has to, the context of the passage has to help us there. So turn back to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read this prayer petition again. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we determine how this is being, this word temptation is being used here, it's almost a paradoxical situation. Lead us not into temptation. Why would Jesus instruct us to pray for God to not lead us into something that James says he would never do anyway? We wouldn't pray that. The other definition would be. Lead us not into testing. That doesn't sound right either, does it? James says we are to rejoice when we go through trials. Because we know that Scripture teaches us they're for our benefit. Then why would we pray for God to not bring those into our life? So on the surface, there seems to be a paradox. How do we resolve this? How are we to interpret this instruction of Jesus to pray for God to not lead us into temptation? Well, as we do this, I think it's very important to note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, and do not tempt us. We know that God doesn't do that. That would be against His nature and character. That's what James was talking about. It does say, do not lead us into temptation. That's very different. God does not entice us to sin, but He does lead us sometimes into situation or conflicts with evil. I think again back to the Lord's temptation that we read in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. Who did the tempting? Satan. Matthew says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit did the leading. Satan did the tempting. God led him into temptation but he did not do the tempting. 
God in His leading us into temptation has no part in enticing us to sin. God never becomes partners with us in our crime. Satan is the one who tempts men in order to ruin them or destroy them. Naturally, you think of 1 Peter 5, 8 that says, Be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? Devour, destroy. God sovereignly leads men into temptation for various reasons. Sometimes for testing, sometimes for proving, sometimes that the wheat would be separated from the chaff. In studying this, I read something Spurgeon said, By these trials hypocrites fall. Being discovered in the hour of temptation, just as the rough march wind sweeps through the forest and finding out the rotten branches snaps them from the tree, the fault not being in the wind, but in the decayed branch. Spurgeon goes on to say that James alludes in his words to the actual solicitation to evil in which God can have no part. But our text in this model prayer deals with providential bringing about of the temptation, which I think we can clearly see can be the Lord's work without His holiness in any degree being stained. So when the Lord leads true believers into temptation, into battle, it's not that we would be wounded and defeated, but that we would be victorious. So we've seen that the word parosmos can be interpreted either good or bad. It's not in the parosmos itself, but it's in our response to it. If we respond in faith and obedience, we endure the trial and God grows us. If we fail and we succumb to it, we enter into temptation. So we still need to get to the heart and intent of the prayer. And to do that, we have to add the second part of the petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word but's important. It means in contrast to, instead of leading us in temptation, instead of allowing us or placing us into situations where we come into battle with evil, we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. And this word for deliver is a very, very strong word. It means rescue. Reach down and rescue us. Pull us out of this. And then the word for evil or evil one is, there's some debate on that. Um, some, some scholars think it's in the neutral form and it just means evil in general. Others think it's in the masculine form and it means evil one. It means Satan. That's why the King, New King James interprets this word every time, the evil one. I'm not going to get into that debate because smarter men than me disagree on the Greek, and I don't know Greek. But I think it's safe to say, whether it be evil or evil one, it's very, very serious. And who's behind most evil is Satan. So the heart and intent of this petition is that we believers strive to live a life free of sin, that we understand the perils and the pitfalls that surround us as we cry out to God, protect us, keep us from these temptations. And if He does allow it, then Lord, rescue us, help us, deliver us, don't let us fall into these perils. And I think we can see more clearly the heart cry of this petition as we examine some applications that we can draw from this text. For me, there's four things that jump out from this text about that Jesus' words share that we need to understand. Four things we need to understand. One, 
we need to understand the seriousness of sin. Sin is all around us. Our culture is sin infested like a rundown house with termites. Everywhere you turn, you see the destruction, you feel the pain. Crime is rampant everywhere. Prisons are overrun. If you're like me, you turn on the news and you just want to turn it back off. Reports of crime. So many that we're almost immune to it. We have more mental problems today than ever before. Pills and medication for depression and anxiety and all kinds of psychological disorders are dispensed like candy. Greed is everywhere. The rich step on the poor. Injustice abounds. You think about immorality that's around us as we see the culture turn from all biblical standards concerning marriage and relationships. Men and women are turning from natural inclinations to deviant lifestyles. Prostitution is rampant. Sexual exploitation is, is in most all advertisements and TV shows. Most movies are not fit to watch. I was walking through the mall one day. I told my wife, it's like walking down the streets of Nineveh. Sin is all around us. And believers are not immune. Sins are all around us and not just around us, but within us, if we're honest. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say about the heart? It's more deceitful than all else and desperately sick, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You know, I see this firsthand Every week in my counseling ministry, it's not just the lost world that sin affects. Believers are struggling with sin. Our culture and our children, our grandchildren are all struggling. Each of us are vulnerable. We struggle at home. We struggle in our relationships. We struggle at work. We struggle with worldliness. We struggle within ourselves as we deal with things like jealousy and pride and selfishness. We cannot escape the lure of sin, and sometimes in our weakness we fall. We succumb to it. Each of us have our own vulnerabilities to sin. My sins and struggles are not yours. You have your own. My struggles are different, but we all have them. We all struggle with sin. And it's this truth that is central in the heart cry of this petition. When we understand our sinfulness in light of God's holiness... That's how we cry out. It's why we cry out, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This passage teaches us to not take sin lightly, to understand the seriousness of sin. But it also speaks to me about the power of evil, specifically the evil one, Satan. That's the second thing that this verse speaks to me that we need to understand. We need to understand the power of evil and specifically the evil one, Satan. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I don't want to give Satan too much credit. But think about how cunning and deceitful and powerful Satan is. Think about this. When Satan was thrown out of heaven in Revelation 12, how many angels did he take with him? A third. Have you ever really thought about that? Satan was able to persuade one third of the angels to rebel with him. 
That is amazing when you stop and think about it. This one rebellious angel persuaded one-third of the other angels to rebel with him against God. And so Lucifer and one-third of the angels were thrown out of heaven. How in the world can I expect to stand against a spiritual being that mighty? It's only by the power of God in us that any of us could fathom defeating Satan's attacks. Jesus understands this, and that is why he instructed us to pray for divine help. Not only did he instruct us to pray for divine help, he prayed this prayer for us. Turn over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I would say, is the real Lord's Prayer. This is where the Lord actually prays for the disciples and for us. It's commonly called the high priestly prayer because he interceded for the disciples and for us. John chapter 17, listen to the words of verse 14 and 15 where Jesus is praying. He says to the Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world even as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus knew the power of Satan and Satan's schemes, and so he prayed for the disciples and for us that God would protect us. Again, I don't want to make too much out of Satanist power because we know that the power of God in us is greater, and yet we are instructed to resist the devil and he will flee from us. But if we don't resist, we may fall prey to his schemes and his deceitfulness. So we need to understand the seriousness of our sin, the sin of our own flesh, the sin of the world system around us, and we need to understand the power and lure of evil and the great tempter to a sin himself, Satan. That's why Jesus instructs us to pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The third application reminder I saw as I studied this was that we need to understand that only by the grace of God would we ever stand in the face of such great temptations. It's because we understand the seriousness of our own sin and our own weakness. It's because we understand the power of evil and the evil one that we understand in our own power we are absolutely and totally helpless to stand against it. We need God's grace. We need His discernment. We need His divine protection. We should never be confident in ourselves alone. A haughty spirit comes before what? A fall. We can only be victorious over sin because greater is He that is in me than who is in the world. So if you do not have any besetting sin that you are addicted to, if you have been faithful to your spouse for many years without ever having strong temptation, if you do not have a problem with anger, praise God for that. God has been gracious to you. But don't be so hard on your brother or sister who stumbles. For you are only who you are by the grace of God, not by the power of your own will. That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Also notice, it is plural. Lead who? Lead us, not lead me. We are to pray for our brothers and sisters as well as ourselves. 
The fourth and final point of application I want to bring out is our need to understand that God always calls us to practice what we pray for. Just as he is not asking us to pray and then sit back and assume God will do what we ask without our participation, God works out most of our prayers through the actions of his people. We share in the work. We pray for God's name to be made holy. Hallowed be your name. And then what do we do? We live a life that will glorify Him. We pray your kingdom come. And we support and are active in missions and evangelism. We pray your will be done. And we attempt to walk obediently. We pray for our daily bread. We acknowledge God as provider. But we look for a job. We get up and we go to work. We participate in forgiveness by forgiving others. And we pray for God to not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil, then we also need to practice what we pray for. So how do we do that? If we pray this prayer and then we flirt with sin, or even rush into the place of temptation, then we are mocking God. Remember what Jesus said to Peter and some of the disciples when he went off to pray in the garden, he came back and found them sleeping, and he said, Watch and pray that you not fall into temptation. Prayer and watchfulness go hand in hand. What does that mean? One of the things it means to me is that we need to be alert. We need to be alert and watchful for things that might stumble us. I thought of Romans 13 verse 14, which tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. What does that mean? It means if you have a problem with lust... You might not need to watch certain TV shows. You might not need to be on the internet. We should all be alert to our own weaknesses. And we should think about what we can do to not put ourselves in positions of temptation. I may have told you this before, but when I was a brokerage office manager in Kentucky in the bank where I worked, I would have female sales reps that would come to the town and many times they would want to schedule lunch meetings with me because I was the one that made the decision on which mutual funds or annuities or whatever products we were going to sell in the bank and they would schedule these appointments and a lot of times it would be single women by themselves and I would not meet with them alone I would either try to get other people in the bank to go with us schedule more people and there was a few times where I couldn't find anybody and I'd call my wife my wife would go with me and a lot of people thought I was really strange and weird for, for, for doing that. But that was a way that God put on my heart to make no provision for the flesh, to protect my marriage. First Thessalonians 5.22 says to avoid every appearance of evil. I read once that Billy Graham would not even get into an elevator with a woman. And if he was on one by himself and a woman got in, he would get off. And leave. I'm sure people thought that was really strange. But he didn't want an appearance of evil. And he's one of the few popular ministers that didn't fall in that error. Sometimes we cannot separate ourselves from all temptation. So how do we practice what we pray then? James 4, 7 is a verse I quoted earlier which says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the sentence before that's important. James tells us right before he says to resist, he says to submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. What is submitting to God? It's obeying his word, isn't it? When we submit to God, in essence, we are submitting to his word. We are obeying his word. We need to practice 
obedience. That's how we resist the devil. We keep being obedient, and we keep being obedient, and we keep being obedient. And as we are more and more successful, Scripture says the devil will go away. 1 John 2.15 tells us to not love the world or the things in the world. Colossians 3.2 tells us to set our affection on the things above. The more we love God, the more we, less we love the, the world. The more we focus on eternity, the more our character is formed by the Word of God, the better equipped we are to overcome evil. Sometimes we don't think about it this way, but we don't have to sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. What does that mean? It means we don't have to sin. We have a way out. What is it? The way out is submission to the Lord. It's obedience. That is what resisting the devil is. Submitting to God's Word is how we resist the devil. That's our escape. So all through this study on the model prayer, I was struck with the fact that it was not only a prayer of words, but it's a prayer and a call to action. The heart cry of this prayer for God to not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil, first of all, reminds us of the seriousness of sin, that we are weak, pitiful sinners, and God hates and can have no part in sin. That evil and the evil one are strong and powerful. The lure of sin and the power of Satan are too strong for us independently to stand up to. That's why we need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to not only pray for divine help, but when God does allow us to be led in temptation, that we would take up the full armor of God. You know Ephesians 6. And we would stand... We would look for the way of escape that we would read about in 1 Corinthians 10.13 and we would submit to God and His Word and overcome it. That's the heart cry of this petition, that we understand who we are, you know, that we're not overconfident. We know God is not going to keep us from every trial and temptation in our life. He's going to sometimes lead us into that. And that's why we cry out, rescue us. Don't let me fall. I know who I am. I know without your help, I would be lost and doomed. That's the heart cry of this prayer. And we don't take it lightly. And we can adapt this prayer individually to our own lives as we watch and as we pray and as we examine our own hearts and our own vulnerabilities and we seek the Lord's help specifically with our own battles in this area. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You and we thank You for Your words that You have left with us as You taught the disciples and us how to pray. We pray, Father, that we would not be immune and grow insensitive to our needs and our struggles, that we would regularly be examining our lives and where we stand in light of the Holy Scriptures and Your words and, Father, Your character. May we put into practice these prayers into our own lives and may we put into action these prayers as we pray for these things to happen. Father, would You help us to enact them in our own lives 
thereby growing us more into the likeness of your Son. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.